Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com and sign up. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Indeed makes it easy to connect with your applicants. No need to install anything extra. Indeed's virtual interviews work from your browser. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. Offer good for a limited time. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving your home. Go to LadderLife.com gold today to see if you're instantly approved. This morning, the U.S. government released its official report card on inflation. We got the April CPI number. Now, the consensus was for a big decline over the March number because March number was hot, hot, hot. 1.2% was the month-over-month increase in CPI. The year-over-year increase was 8.5, and that was the high watermark so far for inflation. Now, again, these are the official numbers. The actual numbers are probably twice as high as what the government admits. So that means the people are dealing with the reality of 15 to 20% inflation. They're not living in a fantasy of 8% inflation, even though that fantasy is still pretty bad. Reality is that much worse. But again, the markets were looking for an improvement and we did get an improvement 
but not nearly as big an improvement as the market was hoping for. The expectation was for a gain of 0.2 in April CPI. And again, it's still a gain. So high prices were still expected to go even higher. So if Americans are struggling with the price structure we have now, the struggle is going to be even more difficult if today's high prices continue to go up. And everybody expects that they will. Nobody is talking about reversing the tremendous gains in prices. Everybody is simply talking about slowing down future gains, but building on past gains. Well, we got the number and it came out as up 0.3, 50% bigger than the 0.2% that was expected. But the real problem was the core because the core number was supposed to go up by 0.4 and it went up by 0.6. Again, that's still a 50% miss, but the core CPI seems to be a lot more important when you strip out the volatile food and energy. And that I think really spooked the markets. Now the year over year numbers have come down from the March peak. And that's the first time in many, many months that we've seen a sequential decline in the year-over-year. So the year-over-year CPI is now up 8.3% and the core is up 6.2%. It was 6.5% in March. But this is still a big, big number. And there is no indication anywhere that the Fed has made any progress in its inflation fight. In fact, it hasn't even really begun its inflation fight. Even though we have a 50 basis point rate hike under the Fed's belt, We're at 75 basis points, basically, to 1%. In an 8% inflation world, even if that's a fantasy world, the rate is too low. The Fed is further and further behind the curve by dragging its feet. And look at the balance sheet. The balance sheet has really not even begun to shrink. In fact, last week, I think it ticked up a notch. Not very much, but it didn't go down. We have a long way to go to actually withdrawing all the liquidity that has caused all the inflation. The inflation was the expansion of the money supply. Now they need to contract that money supply, but they're not even coming close to doing that. They're talking about starting it, but they haven't actually done it. That's why I keep saying that the Fed is just pretending that it's going to fight inflation. Because if it really wanted to fight it, it would be doing it. It wouldn't be talking, it would be acting. Rates would already be much higher. They wouldn't be talking about these future rate hikes. They would raise rates right now in the present. They wouldn't be talking about shrinking their balance sheet in the future. It would be shrinking right now. The reason they're not fighting inflation is because they can't, but they can't admit that. So they have to keep pretending they're going to fight it. And for now, the markets either believe the Fed or they're pretending to believe the Fed. And in fact, before we got these numbers, the markets were optimistic that we might get a benign number. Stock market futures across the board were trading with solid gains. I think about a 1% gain across the board from the Dow to the NASDAQ. Gold was up about 15, 20 bucks. Everything was higher going into this number. And when the number came out worse than expected, everything reversed, stock futures sold off negative, gold went negative. Now gold actually ended up recovering most of those early morning gains and it still closed with a nice gain Although that gain was not enjoyed by the gold stocks, gold and silver stocks continue getting crushed with other stocks, even though gold itself 
is still hanging out. I think we're still above 1850. So gold is holding in strong, but gold and silver stocks are caving. Again, all because investors actually believe that the Fed is going to successfully fight inflation. It's not going to do either. It's not going to fight. And even if it fought, it wouldn't succeed. It would lose, but it's actually going to lose by default because it's not even going to put up a fight. That's how badly inflation is going to win. The market just hasn't come to terms with this reality. In fact, one of the reasons that the market is so convinced that the Fed is going to fight inflation is because they keep listening to what all these Fed governors are saying and they believe them. I was listening to a roundtable discussion. I think it was a fireside chat with Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari, who is the biggest dove on the FOMC, although that title may now belong to the newest Biden appointee, Lisa Cook. Now, I haven't actually read anything yet about Lisa Cook But I know one thing about her. She's the first black woman to now be a member of the FOMC. So clearly, Biden is only considering black women for any of these jobs because he appointed the first black woman to the Supreme Court, and now she's on the court. And now he appointed the first black woman to sit on the FOMC. So I think that Biden is ruling out any male candidates or any candidates who are not black. So if you're not a black woman, don't even bother for applying for a key job. Clearly, he's not hiring the most qualified candidates. He's just hiring the most qualified black woman. And I think that does a disservice to women and blacks. I think that if we're going to make a big deal about having the first black woman on the FOMC, she should be there because she earned it, because she deserves it, because she beat out all the other men, she beat out all the other women. And it just so happened that the one that was the best was a black woman. Now, of course, when you're talking about the best to be on the FOMC, I think they're all incompetent. None of these people are good. The same thing as far as I'm concerned with the Supreme Court. I mean, there's some guys there that are okay, but still there's so many unconstitutional laws that are on the books that the Supreme Court has rubber stamped. But I think the guys on the FOMC could be even more incompetent at their job than the Supreme Court, although it is a tough call because I think both bodies have done the American public a tremendous disservice. But my point about Lisa Cook is I think she's very, very left-wing. In fact, all 50 of the Republican U.S. senators voted against her nomination. So the only reason she made it is because Kamala Harris broke the tie and she was able to take a seat on the FOMC. But my guess, without really knowing too much about her background, but given how popular she was, I guess, among the Democrats, she may end up being the biggest dove there. She could be even more of a dove than Cash Carey. So I think the FOMC is even more inclined to pursue an inflationary policy than it was prior to her appointment. But getting back to this fireside chat, it was Minneapolis President Neil Kashgari and Chris Waller, who was another governor. And I'm mostly going to be talking about the comments that Waller made because he was the guy that was doing most of the talking. I think Kashgari was kind of interviewing him and then Waller was answering all these questions. And, you know, the first thing he said that really struck me is he asked himself a question and then answered it. And the question he asked himself was, how could you guys at the Fed have gotten it so wrong on inflation? Because after all, 
First, you told us that there was no inflation. And then you said, well, we have some, but it's transitory. Don't worry about it. And now all of a sudden we have this huge inflation problem. So how did you miss it? How'd you get it so wrong? The way he answered that question was with an excuse. Instead of admitting that they're just incompetent, what Waller said was that, well, everybody got it wrong. So you can't blame us for getting something wrong that nobody got right. Everybody got it wrong. And then he qualified the statement and said, well, everybody who's paid more than a million dollars a year got it wrong. So in other words, all these high-priced economists on Wall Street or wherever they happen to be practicing got it wrong. All that proves is how much they're overpaid because this was obvious. I mean, if you couldn't see this coming, you have no business calling yourself an economist let alone charging somebody $1 million a year for your economic analysis. So that was number one, trying to claim that nobody got this right. Nobody saw this coming. I mean, what am I, chop liver? I mean, I'm not the only one that was warning about inflation. I've been screaming it from the rooftops for years and years. It didn't just start over the last couple of years. It just became so bad that we can no longer ignore it like we did for many, many years before. But then after he talked about the fact that nobody could have possibly seen it coming, he went on to talk about how now the Fed is on the job. And he admitted that it was in around September or October of last year that they finally realized that the transitory story wasn't flying, that it wasn't real. And when he told it a story, that to me seemed almost like a Freudian slip because the story is like a fiction, like a made up, like, hey, we can no longer sell this transitory story because the evidence was so overwhelming that it wasn't transitory. And so he said by then, well, the Fed was like, oh boy, uh, this is serious. We got a problem on our hands. And according to Waller, that's when the Fed really was Johnny on the spot and immediately started its inflation fight, except it didn't start doing anything. All it started doing was communicating what it was going to do. So it started telling the market, hey, we're going to raise rates sooner than we were telling you we were going to raise them before. We're going to stop expanding the balance sheet sooner than we told you we were going to stop expanding it before. How does that qualify as fighting inflation? It just qualifies as talking about fighting inflation. But if you have a real problem on your hands, one that you have denied existed for many, many months, if not years, when you finally discover that you were wrong, you don't have enough time to just talk about what you're going to do in the future. You recognize that you made a mistake and you act as quickly as you can to rectify it. So back in October of last year, as soon as the FOMC realized that they were wrong, they should have immediately raised interest rates. They should have immediately stopped quantitative easing and started shrinking their balance sheet. They should have realized, oh my God, look how far behind the curve we are. We better start trying to catch up right now instead of allowing themselves to get further and further behind the curve by talking when they should have been acting. And again, the reason they were talking and not acting is because they can't actually act because there is no way that they can fight this inflation. And that is the crazy part of what Waller was talking about, because he was describing and comparing the inflation problem that we have now to the one that we had in the 1970s. And he was saying that the problem now is so much easier to fix, that it's nowhere near as bad as it was back in the 1970s. And one of the reasons that he said the economy is so strong is because of our red hot labor market, that we have such a strong labor market. We have all these jobs that are unfilled and that even if the Fed 
causes some jobs to be destroyed. We have such a surplus of jobs. We have so many extra jobs that we can afford to lose a bunch. And we're still going to have this super strong, red hot labor market. And so he's not worried. He said we can raise rates now and not cause a recession or not cause unemployment the way the Fed caused unemployment and recession back in the 1970s, early 80s, because we have this really, really strong labor market. But again, he is looking at the labor market through the prism of 0% interest rates and QE. He's looking in the rearview mirror because we no longer have that monetary policy. All you have to do is look through the windshield and look at what's coming. It is going to be massive layoffs. I'm going to get to, again, the carnage on Wall Street, but these companies are imploding. A lot of them are going to go bankrupt. Massive layoffs are coming. And even the people that don't get laid off are going to cut back on their spending because they've been wiped out in the stock market. And so a lot of jobs are going to go away. All these open positions that are unfilled that he's talking about, companies are going to decide all of a sudden, hey, we don't need these people. Let's just stop looking for workers because you know what? We don't need them. We thought we needed them because we thought we had a strong economy, but we were wrong. We now have a recession. And so we don't need all those workers that we thought we needed. And so those job openings are no longer there. Meanwhile, a lot of people who weren't even in the labor force because they were making so much money trading stocks and cryptocurrencies, these guys need jobs. Also, a lot of retirees who were out of the labor force, but whose retirement income has been obliterated and the cost of living keeps going up. A lot of these guys are going to come off the sideline back into the job game. They're now going to be unemployed. So the unemployment rate is going to spike very quickly. And when it does, all those job openings are going to disappear. And the myth of this strong labor market is going to go away. But what we're going to be left with is the reality of high inflation and no ability on the part of the Fed to fight that inflation without causing a recession. In fact, not only will they cause a recession, they could cause a depression. They will cause a financial crisis that is much bigger than the financial crisis they caused in 2008. Only this time, if the Fed is committed to fighting inflation, no bailouts for anybody, which means it's going to be that much worse. When you're running a small business, one of the hardest things to do is hire the right people. And that's especially true because when you hire the wrong people, it can turn into a real nightmare. And that's why you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed can be a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. You can find great talent fast using time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. What I like best about Indeed is how much they've simplified the hiring process. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you'll get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description so you can immediately invite them to apply. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for the applicants that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an incredibly powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all the other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. So join the more than 3 million business owners worldwide who already use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
So start hiring right now and get a $75 sponsor job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer good for a limited time. So claim your $75 job credit now at Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. Terms and conditions apply. Paper qualified applicant not available for all users. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Another big difference that Waller pointed out that in his opinion puts the Fed in a much better position now than it was when Paul Volcker was the chair back in 1980 is the fact that the Federal Reserve has so much more credibility on fighting inflation now than it had back in 1980. How does he figure that? I mean, how does the Fed have any credibility in inflation fighting when it hasn't even fought inflation? It's been denying inflation existed. In fact, according to the Fed, for the last five or 10 years, there wasn't enough inflation. Its goal was to create more inflation. So how does Waller think the Fed has any credibility in doing something that it has never even done? Now, when he talked about the problem the Fed had in the 1970s, he said, well, by 1980, when Volcker came around, we had 10 years of inflation. And so the Fed lost its credibility on fighting inflation because we had had it for so long and the Fed hadn't successfully fought it. He claims that we've only had our inflation for about a year and so we don't have this baggage of having had a 10-year inflation problem that's weighing on credibility. Well, the main reason that we haven't had an inflation problem for the last 10 years is because we haven't admitted it. We've had inflation. We're just not measuring it properly based on the CPI, if we were actually measuring inflation during the last 10 years, the way they measured it during the 1970s, we would have had many, many years of high inflation. So the reason we didn't is because we lied about it. But that didn't mean we didn't have it. We just didn't acknowledge it. It was there. But also a lot of the inflation was exported. Look at our trade deficits. A lot of it went into financial assets. Look at the bubble that we had. Yes, there was a bubble during the 1960s too, during the era of the Nifty 50 and what was going on back then with the bubble in stocks. But the one that we've just gone through dwarfs any bubble that we had during the 1960s. So this is a much bigger inflation problem. The fact that Waller thinks it's no big deal that there was a much bigger problem in the 70s than the one we have now shows you how little the Fed actually understands the economy that we have now, let alone the economy as it existed back in the 70s and early 1980s. The fact of the matter is the economy was actually in much better shape back then. Back in 1980, America was the world's largest creditor nation. We're now the world's largest debtor nation. Back in 1980, America still ran annual trade surpluses. Today, we are running record annual trade deficits. And of course, back in 1980, the national debt was under $1 trillion. Now it's over $30 trillion. And back then, almost all that debt was financed with 20, 30-year treasuries. Now it's financed with 90-day T-bills. We are far more leveraged and far more vulnerable to rising interest rates now than we were then. And that topic was not even mentioned during this entire discussion. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. 
so your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secured Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You have them talking about a comparison between the inflation now and the inflation back then and what the Fed has to do to contain it and how the Fed has a much easier job now that it's nowhere near as difficult as it was when Volcker was there because Volcker had to raise interest rates up to 20%. We don't have to do that this time because we have so much more credibility. But even if we had to go to 5%, let alone 10 or 20%, even 5% is too much for the economy to bear. I don't even think the economy can handle 2% because it couldn't handle 2.5% in the fourth quarter of 2018. That's why the Fed stopped hiking back then. Well, if it couldn't handle two and a half back then, it can't possibly handle it now when we have so much more debt. That's why I don't even think we can handle 2%. The Fed says it's going to go up to 2 to 3%. That's not even enough to do anything about the inflation we have now, but it's more than enough to crash the economy because that's not enough heroin for this heroin-addicted economy. The economy needs a certain amount of QE and 0% interest rates because it's so levered up. And even if it gets slightly less drugs than it needs, it goes into a convulsion. We have withdrawal and that's just begun. But in addition to saying that he's not worried 
about a repeat of the 1970s because we're in such great shape now with this super strong economy. So he's not worried about the type of recession that we had in the early 1980s because the Fed can fight inflation without hurting the economy because it could take the rate hikes. He also said that we don't have to worry about any comparisons to the real estate bubble, that it's nothing like it was in 2006 and 2007, that the real estate market is in good shape. People put large down payments when they bought their homes. There's a lot of home equity. It's not like the days of the last housing bubble of the 2000s when people had nothing down and liars loans and teaser rates and adjustable rate mortgages. So everything is great. The problem is back then during that housing bubble, nobody was worried about those things. I remember when I was warning about the problems of zero down and no doc loans and liars loans. No one at the Fed was worried about it. It was only after the fact, after everything collapsed, that they then said, oh, I guess these things were bad. So the Fed never recognizes the problem in the market when the bubble is still inflating. It always only recognizes it with the benefit of hindsight once the air has come out. So it's doing the same thing now. It's making the same rationalizations that it did back then. And in fact, I remember back in that bubble, people kept saying, we don't have to worry about mortgage debt because everybody has so much home equity. Well, the home equity is a function of price. If real estate prices go down, the home equity vanishes. And the same thing is going to happen this time. If we get a big drop in real estate prices, the home equity goes away. And when people don't have any home equity, they don't make their mortgage payments, especially if their mortgage payments go up because there still are a lot of people with adjustable rate mortgages. And one of the reasons that the average home buyer put up a larger down payment is you had such a large percentage of the homes that were bought for all cash, no mortgages at all because they were bought by investors. So if you strip out that, the average individual who bought and occupies his own home barely has any skin in the game because they couldn't scrape up much of a down payment. And so they're going to be negative equity pretty quickly. But also just because a lot of these private equity funds like BlackRock, you know, they bought real estate without any mortgages. That doesn't mean they didn't borrow the money to then buy the property. They just didn't use a mortgage. They used cheap credit and they got loans and now they bought up a bunch of houses. That doesn't mean these houses aren't going to get sold. In fact, it may be even easier for these companies to unload because they don't have any mortgage debt. They may just say, you know what? we got to blow out this portfolio of rental homes. Our rates have gone up. You know, our tenants aren't paying. We just need to get rid of this. And it doesn't even matter what we lose because when people have big mortgages, a lot of those houses during the last real estate crash never came on the market because the banks didn't want to sell them because it would be a short sale. And so the banks kind of held off. But for investors that own real estate with no mortgage, you don't need the permission of the bank to sell. And if you bought a place and now it's half of what you paid, I mean, you can still sell it and get money out of it because you don't have any mortgage. It's not like a normal person, if they bought something with 5% down, there's no reason to sell it when the price is down 20 or 30%. You're not going to get any money. You're going to walk away with nothing. You've lost your entire down payment. So you're going to stay there until the bank kicks you out. But once the bank kicks you out, are they really going to sell it? They might just hold on to the home and hope the price comes up because they're not going to get their money back. But if there's no loan at all, there's no bank, there's just an owner who owns the property without any debt. If he sells it, whatever the proceeds are, he puts it in his pocket. So we actually may have more homes for sale in the next downturn than the one we had in 2008. So again, 
The Fed is whistling past this graveyard. It thinks the U.S. economy is in this super strong position. It's wrong. It's just as wrong in overestimating the strength of the economy as it was in underestimating the resilience of inflation. It thought inflation was transitory. It was wrong. It thinks we have a strong economy. It's wrong. Just like it was wrong to think that the subprime market was contained. I mean, the Fed has been wrong about everything, which is so amazing in that Waller can claim that the Fed has so much credibility. For what reason? What has it done? I don't know why it has any credibility. Now, it does for some crazy reason. But one of the points that Waller made as to why the Fed lost credibility in inflation fighting is that Waller said, you know, they would start an inflation fight, but then unemployment would pick up, the economy would turn down, and so they would abort and they would focus on the economy. Well, that's exactly what the Fed is going to do. Who is he kidding? The Fed is only claiming that they're going to fight inflation because they think the economy can take it, because they don't think there's going to be an uptick in unemployment. They don't think there's going to be a recession. Well, when they're wrong about that, when the economy goes into recession, when the unemployment rate surges, they are going to do exactly what the Fed did in the 1970s. They are going to abort their pretend inflation fight. And any credibility that they still have will be lost. And again, that is why Jerome Powell made it clear that he does not admire Paul Volcker because he raised rates. He only admires Paul Volcker because he did what he thought was right. And what Powell's going to think is right, especially with that new far left wing FOMC member, Lisa Cook, who was just appointed with her guidance, what are they going to do? They are going to print money. They're going to focus on the economy, jobs. They're going to say jobs are more important than inflation. The economy is more important. We can't have a recession. We can't have unemployment. We can't just die on this false altar of inflation fighting. In fact, what will they do? They will go back to stimulating the economy. And how will they fight inflation? They'll leave that up to Congress with price controls. It's all coming. That's why I'm also been saying that shortages, you think we got shortages now, where do you see how bad these shortages are? I was just reading about how it's very hard to get baby formula. The markets are completely out of baby formula. Now, I guess for a lot of women, I guess they'd have to start breastfeeding. I mean, that's one positive thing, although maybe some of these women can't breastfeed at this point and they need the formula. But I mean, we're going to have widespread shortages of everything if we end up with price controls. But that is definitely the direction that we're going in. And I think those price controls can be here before the 2024 election, because I think the Fed is most likely going to do its pivot before the midterm elections in November of this year. And of course, it's not just the FOMC members who are overestimating the strength of the U.S. economy. Joe Biden never misses an opportunity to claim credit for this red-hot economy, this booming labor market. I was listening again yesterday to a speech he was making in which he credited his policies for this booming economy, for the strongest job creation in history of any president. He said that his policies were responsible for all this job creation, that he built this recovery from the bottom up. Just all this nonsense because Joe Biden hasn't built anything. His policies haven't done anything except make the situation worse. The reason that we have jobs being created during his presidency is because those jobs were temporarily put on hold before he became president. We shut down the economy due to COVID. And so we told businesses to temporarily furlough their workers. The workers went home where they were in quarantine 
supposedly riding out COVID. And so the jobs were never really destroyed. They were just on pause. And then when Biden is president, we unpaused. And now people returned to the jobs that were already there. The Biden administration didn't create those jobs. Those jobs were still there under Trump. And the workers simply returned to the jobs that already existed before Biden became president. But now Biden is claiming credit for creating those jobs when he didn't create any. And certainly his policies didn't create because he doesn't have any policies. All Biden did was spend more money. He passed this deficit spending. The Fed printed up a bunch of money and we mailed out checks and that's inflation. So the only thing Biden is responsible for is inflation. He's not responsible for a recovery. He's not responsible for prosperity. He's not responsible for jobs. But one thing that is going to happen, in part because of Biden's policies, but not 100%, is a lot of the jobs that were restored in the first half of his presidency are going to be lost again. Only this time, they're going to be lost for good. Because the companies that these people work for, they're not just furloughing their workers until COVID is over. They're going to be firing their workers permanently because the companies are going out of business. And there's not going to be another round of PPP loans or other kinds of bailouts to keep these businesses going. They are going bankrupt. They're shutting down. They're scaling back. And they're laying off workers. And these jobs are going to be gone for good. There's not going to be any jobs for these people who are fired to return to. Those jobs are permanently gone. And all that is going to happen on Biden's watch. So right now, he's claiming credit for all these jobs that were created. Well, by the time he leaves office, most of those jobs will be gone. And in fact, there may even be a net loss of jobs during his presidency. But even if there is a net gain, the jobs we gain are going to be low-paying jobs compared to the higher-paying jobs that we will have lost. I've been in the investment business my entire life, and one of the key mistakes that a lot of people make is buying life insurance and thinking it's an investment. It's not. You buy life insurance to pay out in the unlikely event that you die prematurely. You make investments for the far more likely event that you don't. And that's why when you're buying insurance, you want the biggest bang for your buck. You want a policy that pays out the most, but allows you to put in the least so you can free up the rest of the money to make actual investments. That's where Ladder comes in because Ladder specializes in term life insurance. And to make it simpler, it's 100% digital when you apply for $3 million of coverage or less. There are no doctors, no needles, no paperwork. To apply, you just need a phone and a laptop and a few extra minutes. Let Ladder Smart Algorithm work in real time so you'll find out instantly if you've been approved. And there's no hidden fees. You can cancel anytime. And if you change your mind during the first 30 days, you can cancel and get a full refund. Ladder's policies are insured by issuers with long proven histories of paying claim. And since life insurance costs more as you get older, now's the time to cross it off your list. So go to ladderlife.com gold today to see if you're instantly approved. That's ladderlife.com gold. L-A-D-D-E-R life.com gold to see if you're instantly approved. But I want to circle back and go over what happened in the markets. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, before we got the release of the inflation numbers, the stock market, the gold market was way up. And then the numbers came out and everything sold off. And while gold managed to recover most of its losses from its morning rally, 
Gold was up about 14 bucks on the day. We closed at 18.54. The stock market continued to make new lows throughout a choppy trading session, but we ended up closing pretty much on the lows of the day. The technical damage continues to be severe in the U.S. market. The index that held up the best was the Dow Jones, again, because there's relative value in many of these Dow Jones companies compared to the overpriced stocks that dominate the NASDAQ and are more popular in the S&P 500. But the Dow dropped 1%, so it's now down 14% from its high. And if all you were doing is looking at the Dow Jones, you wouldn't think it was that bad. I mean, it's not even a real bear market yet. It's barely a correction. But then if you look at the S&P 500, which was down 1.65% today, there you're down 18.3%, almost a bear market, but not quite. Where it really starts to look ugly is when you get into the NASDAQ and the Russell 2000. The NASDAQ was down 2.7% today. That was the weakest of the major averages. That brings the total decline to 28.6%. We are delving deeper into bear market territory. Even deeper in bear market territory is the Russell 2000, which dropped 2.5% on the day. That index is now down a full 30% from the high, and there is no bottom anywhere in sight. In fact, some of the debacles de jour, one of them was a newer company, Upstart Holdings. The symbol on this company is UPST. And this is one of the newer companies. It didn't even come public until January of this year. And the stock initially had a pretty good run. If you're not familiar with what Upstart Holdings does, they're an artificial intelligence consumer lending company. So obviously, this is a company that was born from the consumer spending bubble that accompanied easy money, cheap credit, lots of stock market wealth. Well, the fortunes of this company have already soured. They missed on their earnings yesterday. The stock dropped better than 50% on the day. It was down another 16% today. The stock is now down 93% from its high. A complete disaster for anyone who piled into this IPO. For some reason, Kathy Wood doesn't own this one. I'm not really sure how she missed it. It seemed like a perfect stock for her. But this is a prime example of what is going on beneath the headlines of the market. And there's all sorts of stocks that are blowing up every day. Today, we got Beyond Meat, which was only down about 12% during normal trading because they didn't come out with their earnings until after the market closed. But then it dropped another 20% after it missed earnings. So between the normal session and the after hours, down about 33%. Beyond Meat is now down 90% from its record high. And it hit that high within two months of its initial public offering back in 2019. Again, illustrating the dangers of buying a story stock. Yeah, this was very sexy. Everybody wanted to buy it. No one cared about the valuation or what they were paying because it was going to infinity and beyond as far as the investors were concerned. Well, if you're still holding the stock that you bought in 2019, you could be down as much as 90%. But the real carnage, and this is really what I want to talk about, happened in the blockchain cryptocurrency space anything related to anything 
crypto got decimated today and the bloodbath is hardly over. There is so much more downside coming. To give you an idea of what happened, first of all, Coinbase, that stock came out with its earnings and it missed. The company managed to lose a staggering $430 million on the quarter. Have no idea how they could have lost so much money, but they did. Trading volume also plunged by 44%. So the stock dropped another 27% on the day. It's down better than 85% from its highs. You know, the crazy part about it is when the stock was down about 25%, Goldman Sachs came out and downgraded the stock from a buy to a neutral. That is typical Wall Street behavior. They wait until the stock has completely imploded before going from a buy to what is effectively a hold. That's what a neutral is. They don't even have the guts or the integrity to put a sell on the stock. They just put a hold on it. Hold what? 85% of it has evaporated. There's barely anything left to hold on to. But this is how Wall Street operates. In fact, the most amazing aspect to me of the crypto bubble is that the smart money got in at the top. In other words, the dumb money. Wall Street got in at the end. The small investor, the little guy, bought into Bitcoin a decade ago. Wall Street didn't discover it until the last year or two. And so Wall Street was actually the exit strategy. But unfortunately, Wall Street actually invested money for the little guy. Because in most cases, Wall Street is never investing its own money. It's investing their customers' money. So all this Wall Street money that piled into crypto, it wasn't actually institutional money that was going in. It was the individuals who got suckered in by the institutions who bought all these products that blew up. I talked a little bit about those Anthony Scaramucci, Skybridge, Unit Investment Trusts. Those things got obliterated again today. There are four of those trusts. They're now down 48.4%, 57.6%, 74.5%, and 63.4% since they were launched. And the reason only one of them is down 74.5% is because the third one came out after the market rallied because the first two helped push up the price of those stocks so that by the time the third one came along, it was buying into an already inflated market. The first one that came out at 10, it ended up going as high as 15 before crashing. So it's down 67% from its high. But even though this is institutions, the investors are individuals. They just got led down this path by these institutions who couldn't see beyond their own greed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, now they better lawyer up because I think everybody who had anything to do with crypto and blockchain, whether it's sales, marketing, trading, custody, everybody is going to get sued because the people who lost money are going to look to get it back. And that's where the lawyers always come in. But look at some of these other stocks, not just Coinbase. MicroStrategy was down another 26% today. I think it was down on my last podcast. I mentioned it was down like 25% on the day. MicroStrategy is now down 81%
from its high. Again, this is the poster stock for crypto, for Bitcoin in particular. It's like a leveraged Bitcoin ETF. Well, it's about to get a margin call. I remember reading that a margin call will be triggered if Bitcoin is at 20,000. Well, as I'm recording this podcast, it's below 29,000. The low so far today is just below 28,000. But since we broke below the critical 30,000 level, we're in no man's land now. I expect the market to implode. In fact, MicroStrategy's average cost, the last time I checked, was just above 30,000. So MicroStrategy is now losing money on its crypto. But the bigger problem is a lot of that crypto was bought with borrowed money. It still has to pay interest on the money it borrowed, but now it's losing the money because it's evaporating with Bitcoin. And for all I know, his average price is higher because maybe MicroStrategy bought more Bitcoin over the last couple of weeks at higher prices. I know El Salvador recently announced that it bought the dip, and so now it's losing even more money. You know, eventually El Salvador is going to need an IMF bailout based on all the money they blew on Bitcoin. The problem is maybe the IMF won't want to bail them out because they warned them not to do it, and they did it anyway. In fact, take a look at the shares of the Grayscale Bitcoin Investment Trust. That trust plunged by 10% today. It's now down 67% from its peak, but more significantly, the discount to NAV is the highest I've ever seen now at 29%. Again, that is a powerful competitor for Bitcoin itself. Why go into the market and buy Bitcoin when you can buy your Bitcoin through this trust and get such a huge discount to its NAV? Of course, a major shareholder of the Bitcoin Investment Trust is the ARK Innovation ETF. That ETF was down another 10% today. That stock is now down 77% from its highs and it's still falling. Now look, I have been warning everybody on this podcast what was going to happen to this fund and it's playing out right before your eyes. We are nowhere near the bottom. You know, I'd watch it on CNBC. All they talk about is bottoms, bottoms, bottoms. You think you're not a strip club. There's so much bottom spotting going on at CNBC. Look, we're not at a bottom. In many cases, we're closer to the top than the bottom. Now, I get it. Some of these stocks are down 70, 80, 90%. Okay, right? I mean, they're much closer to the bottom because there's not much left that they can fall. But the overall market, you know, with the Dow Jones down, what did I say, 14%? Sure, there's a long way to go down just for the Dow Jones to get into a bear market. And to think the Dow Jones is going to escape a bear market, to me, that's just wishful thinking. So we still got more downside. That doesn't mean we can't have a rally. We can have a bear market rally at any point. But instead of talking about where the market's going to bottom, what they should be talking about is when to get out or what kind of rally to look for. And in fact, the most amazing thing about the CNBC coverage is they still are not circumspect at all with respect to their non-stock pumping of all these stocks that are blowing up all these cryptocurrencies that are blowing up and they're bringing on the same people that were touting these stocks. They come on and they still treat them with such reverence or respect. They're like, what do you think now? What are you doing? Are these stocks still a buy? Are these cryptos a buy? Oh, thank you very much for coming on and for being honest and you're a great guest and we really appreciate you coming on. And, you know, they don't hold them accountable at all for everything they said blowing up for everybody losing all their money or most of their money. They will eventually lose all their money. But these guys have just as much credibility somehow as they had when Bitcoin was at 60,000 as they do when it's back below 30,000. And they were touting all these stocks. Coinbase was supposed to be a blue chip stock, like the equivalent of an IBM or some other stock like that. 
There's nothing blue chip. There's no blue chips in crypto at all. All this stuff was highly risky. In fact, the thing about the ARK ETF, the point of an ETF is to diversify so you can get out of single stock risk, right? You don't want to have just one or two stocks because something might go wrong. So you want to diversify to eliminate that single stock risk. Well, what kind of diversification was achieved with the ARK Innovation ETF? Nothing. Because if all your stocks are overpriced crap, if you just diversify in a bunch of overpriced stocks, there's no diversification at all. Everything trades together. There's no point in being in that ETF. Just pick any one of those stocks and they all did just as bad. In fact, somehow, Kathy Wood is being credited as being some great stock picker. She's a horrible stock picker. She has no idea what she's doing. Yes, there was a big run. If you look at where the ARK ETF was at its absolute low in March of 2020, it was at $33. That was the low. And then it almost went up 5x. Well, if you look at where it is now, it closed today below 37. Almost all of that 5x gain is gone. It's now only up 12%. It's underperformed everything. Kathy Woods is so underperforming every stock market benchmark, every index, how anybody can claim that she's a great stock picker. Plus, the only reason her performance isn't worse is because she got lucky with Tesla. Because if you look at Tesla, it's by far her biggest holding. It's about 7% of the ETF. Tesla, even though it's off its highs considerably, is still 10 times higher than its March 2020 low. So even with that 10x performance of their number one position, the fund is still horribly underperforming. And in fact, I listened to an interview and just like Biden wants to blame Putin for inflation, Kathy Wood wants to blame the Fed and short sellers for her bad performance. She's not accepting any responsibility for lousy stock picking, overpaying for a bunch of crap and being blinded by a bubble. No, she didn't do anything wrong. None of it is her fault. It's all the Fed's fault for raising interest rates. It's the fault of all these short sellers for shorting these stocks. Well, why are they shorting these stocks? Because they're overvalued. That's why they're shorting them. You are just dumb enough to buy them because you didn't understand that. And she's mad that the Fed is raising rates. They've barely raised them. Rates are not even 1%. Imagine what's going to happen to Kathy Wood's portfolio if the Fed actually raises interest rates to an appropriate level. Look, everybody is pointing fingers at everybody else. Nobody wants to accept responsibility, whether it's on Wall Street or in Congress or at the Federal Reserve. And that's why I am here to put the blame where the blame belongs. Here's another one I talk about a lot. Robinhood. Robinhood down again, 11% on the day. New lows for the stock. It's now down better than 90%. But I think the catalyst for all this carnage in crypto, more so than just the Coinbase losses, look what happened with losses overnight with both the Terra Luna coin and the Terra UST stablecoin. This company, Terra Labs, was all the rage, very popular. They came out with some coins that went way up. And one in particular was this stablecoin that was going to be stable to the US dollar like Tether, except they weren't going to own dollars. Now, of course, Tether doesn't own dollars either. It's all a lie. So maybe this is just a precursor of a Tether blow up. But just focusing on the Luna stablecoin, it's not backed by dollars or other dollar-denominated securities such as bonds. It was backed by some type of algorithm that was going to figure out how many 
tokens to create or burn depending on what was going on with the market. And there was backing. They were backing this stable coin with Bitcoin. But you know, you can't really back one crypto with another crypto because what's backing Bitcoin? Nothing. And so the problem with having Bitcoin as your security is what happens if Bitcoin drops? And we're seeing what happens with Bitcoin dropping. It's a complete disaster. And you know, when they first announced this, a lot of people were so excited in the crypto world because they were buying all this Bitcoin and people were thinking, hey, this is showing that Bitcoin is the new gold because Bitcoin is going to be used as a reserve asset. We're going to be backing digital currencies with gold the same way that paper currencies used to be backed by gold. So Bitcoin is the new gold because it's backing this stable coin. Well, at the time, I pointed out that it wouldn't work because there's no stability in Bitcoin. So how can you have a stable coin built on a foundation that in and of itself is not stable? And I knew that this was a disaster waiting to happen. I pointed it out on this podcast. I just didn't realize a disaster would happen this quickly. And one of the telltale signs of the scam was the fact that if you bought into this Luna stablecoin fraud, you were being promised 20% interest. How could you possibly get 20% interest? Interest rates were zero and people were being told, hey, just buy this stablecoin and you're going to have a coin that's not going to go down. So it's risk-free, right? It's like a money market. It can't go down. But unlike a money market that doesn't pay any interest, we're going to give you 20% interest. 20% a year is an incredible return. I mean, that beats the return on the stock market most years. In fact, 20% is a very good year in the stock market, and you take a lot of risk to get 20%. But the people who were buying this supposedly stable coin were being told, you're not taking any risk, but you're going to get this huge reward. Well, that's impossible. You can't get a big reward without taking a big risk. How is it possible that they could pay 20%? They can't. The whole thing had Ponzi written all over it, and that's exactly what happened. So this thing started to blow up, and this stablecoin last night, I think, was trading below 40 cents. It may have even traded below 30 cents. I forget where the low was, but it imploded. Now, obviously, the only way they could try to stabilize the market was to sell Bitcoin out of their reserves which has been adding to the downward pressure on Bitcoin. I have no idea how many Bitcoin they sold, how many more Bitcoin they need to sell, but all of this is an unfolding disaster for both that coin, the whole crypto industry, as far as I'm concerned, and Bitcoin. A lot of people were excited about the fact that one of the reasons Bitcoin wasn't falling more when other tech stocks were going down was that the Terra Luna, they were buying Bitcoin to increase their reserves for their stablecoin. And I pointed out, I remember Anthony Pompliano tweeted out about how great it was that they were buying Bitcoin and supporting the market. And I said, what happens when they stop buying? Or what happens when they start selling? Nobody wanted to contemplate that potential disaster. Well, now that disaster is a reality, but it's even a bigger disaster for that Luna token. This thing had a huge rally and overnight it was down like 98, 99%. I mean, this thing had about a 50 or $60 billion market cap that completely imploded. The losses were greater in that Luna coin than they were in the US dollar stable coin. But almost the entire market cap of one of the largest cryptocurrencies, it must have been in the top 10 easy, just vanished, evaporated in one single day. Exactly one week ago, those tokens were trading above $116 a piece 
and this morning they were changing hands below a dollar. Now, if this is not a wake-up call for the people in crypto, I don't know what is. I mean, look at what's going on in the NASDAQ. In particular, look at these crypto stocks leading the way down, down 70, 80, 90%, no bottom in sight. And now these tokens are blowing up. Look at the total market cap now of all the cryptocurrencies. I'm on coin market cap right now. We're below 1.25 trillion. We were almost at 3 trillion at the peak. So we have a 60% decline in the market cap of all of crypto. By the way, there's now better than 19,400, 19,412 tokens to be exact on last count, but they're blowing up. Bitcoin, as I am speaking, is about 28,700. Ether is barely above 2,000 at 2,063. I think the support for Ether is going to come in at around 1,800. And I would expect that support to be tested tonight, which means we have quite a bit more downside tonight in Bitcoin. But I can't think of any reason why support would hold. I think a lot of people who have been holding are going to start selling, especially if you look at the Coinbase announcement. I didn't even mention this fact. I just remembered it. But in addition to the bad earnings, Coinbase actually had to amend its filings to warn its customers that in the event that Coinbase goes bankrupt, that their holdings that they have on deposit, whatever cash or cryptocurrency is sitting in a Coinbase account, the warning is if we go bankrupt, we might have to freeze your account. Your account may be part of our assets that go to our creditors. So you can lose your money as a customer. Now, of course, that would send me rushing, not only to dump my stock in Coinbase, but more likely get my money out of Coinbase. Like whatever coins I got there, transfer them to another wallet. If I have any cash, have it wired out, whatever. Why would you want to leave it in there? Now, Armstrong, the CEO of the company, quickly came out and tried to warn everybody that what he wrote in that filing wasn't true. And to me, that seems like an SEC violation to me. He's basically saying, look, we only put it in there because the government requires us to put it in there. But it's not actually a possibility. Well, the reason the government requires you to put it in there is because it is a possibility. To say that it's not possible is a lie. Of course it's possible. Now, what he said was that we don't know what's going to happen because he said it's untested. We have no idea how the courts are going to treat these assets and these customer accounts. We don't know if they'll look at it as a segregated account that belongs to the customer or if it's commingled with our balance sheet. He said he didn't know. Well, if he doesn't know, how can he tell people that it's not a risk? And because he doesn't know, that's why he had to include it in those filings. And even if it turns out that the courts end up ruling that the funds on deposit in customers' accounts are segregated and are not attachable by the creditors, who knows how long it's going to take to work that out? What if everybody's Coinbase account is frozen for several weeks or several months? Who knows? Maybe even several years if you have no access to your account. Maybe you can't even trade in your account. As crypto prices are imploding, maybe by the time you have access to your coins, your coins won't have any value anymore. And so what good will it be if you have access to crypto that has no value? Maybe the only thing that will have value will be the cash. But maybe you want to do something with that cash. Inflation is going to destroy the value of that. And if it's tied up in a Coinbase account in litigation, you lose access to that. So all of this bad stuff is happening. The market to me 
It's got so much bad news. It's got nothing going for it. I think it's a race to get out. I think the big money, the whales, I've been saying this on this podcast, judging by how they're throwing money around Puerto Rico and overpaying for everything. Anybody who knows anything is getting out. And all the big guys are trying to do is keep the little guys from jumping ship. It's all a bunch of propaganda. It's all a bunch of pump, 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 so the smart money can dump. Well, pretty soon, all the money's going to dump. And you know what? There's going to be no one left to buy. All the dumb money is already in, and nobody who was thinking about buying Bitcoin or any crypto who hasn't bought it, no one's going to come in and buy it now. No one is dumb enough to try to catch this falling knife. So all you're going to have is sellers, no buyers. Maybe there's still some foolish hodlers out there that still have a little dry powder, and maybe they're dumb enough to think they're buying the dip and they're going to average in because they still don't get it. But ultimately, they will. They're going to get overrun by selling. And eventually, even the diehards are going to get out. But you know what? They may get out not because they want to, because they have to. Because MicroStrategy isn't going to be the only one with a margin call. I think that once we break below 10,000, and it may not even take 10,000, maybe 20,000 or 15,000, but somewhere along the way, we're going to hit a point where all of the lenders who have loaned money against crypto collateral are going to be calling in those loans. They're going to be asking the borrowers to put up more collateral and they're not going to have it. And that means the collateral that they did post, their Bitcoin or their Ether, whatever the currency they have, it's all going to get sold. Into what? Into a vacuum. There's not going to be anyone there. So the margin calls are going to exacerbate the decline. And you know, normally in stock market, when you have a big decline, one of the reasons that the market stops going down is the shorts cover. Well, I think there are some shorts in Bitcoin, but there's not that many. There's not a lot of shorts to cover. So there's nobody that's going to buy. This thing is just going to implode, especially when you add in all the forced liquidation. So that's why I've been telling people, look, rather than waiting until you're forced to sell, just sell now. I mean, it's much better getting out at 28500 when the market's not imploding than being forced out at 5000 I mean, do you want that? I mean, in the long run, yeah, because it's going to zero. But why not sell it now? Why wait to sell it later? I mean, if anything, if you want, you could trade it. You could buy a little bit back at 5000 and then sell it if it rallies to ten or 15000 I, I have no interest in trading Bitcoin. I have no idea where the tradable bounce is, and I don't care. Right? I think it's going to zero and I don't think it's worth playing around. I think there's a lot of other speculations. As I mentioned earlier, look what's happening to gold and silver stocks. They're getting clobbered too. There's the real value. I can see tremendous upside in those stocks. That's why I'm still buying in my personal portfolio. As long as they're giving these stocks away, I'm going to accept the gift. I'm convinced that there is going to be an explosive rally in gold. Gold is not going down. It's going to go way up. And when it does, these stocks are going to explode. Right now, people are selling everything. And so they're selling the babies along with the bathwater. Bitcoin and anything crypto related, that's all bathwater. But those gold and silver stocks, nothing but baby. <music>